Well, good morning. It's up 1045. Good to see you. I told Brett after he did that song in Run Through this morning, I said, I'm just going to come out, do the benediction, dismiss everyone, nobody be the wiser for it. Wasn't that a beautiful, beautiful song? Thankful to Brett for that. Hey, we turned the heater on this morning, and I don't know how, but I guess there was some old confetti uh, from an old VBS that started coming down. And so if that happens during the sermon, you are all invited to play Catch the Confetti. And I'm going to be playing it up here if it happens, so you're invited to do that as well. Justin promised earlier that there was, there was great preaching here. P- perhaps premature promise there. <laughs> Jeff said to me in nine, he said, has he heard your sermon? <laughs> and then I had two people in the back say, hey, I invited friends because you're preaching. No pressure. Gosh, that is a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's, like you're the, uh, it's like you're the football announcer on the TV, like right before the field goal kicker gets up. Like, oh, this guy has made 28 in a row. And then you jinxed him. And he hits the crossbar. Hopefully... I can avoid that this morning. Um, Good to be with you here this morning. Good to see you. Well, I was going to say see you joining us online. Let me start that over. Good for you to see us joining us online. I know there's people worshiping all over the states and even off-continent. So welcome to those of you from Wisconsin. We know we have Mount Horeb family in Wisconsin, Michigan, Texas, Missouri. I know people are traveling for the holidays and you can tune in. I hear people tune in in their car, but sometimes when the worship or the sermon gets ramped up, they accidentally start to speed. So if you're driving in your car, just be mindful of that. We are going to wrap up our series, Encountering Jesus, our eight-week series in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm so thankful for our sermon prep team and all the teaching team who has Uh, put this together and done a really great job trying to communicate through Mark. We've seen encountering Jesus as the good news, as divine, as storyteller, as healer. Today, we will encounter Jesus as sacrifice. And where did sacrifices take place? They took place in the temple. And when we encounter Jesus as sacrifice in the temple, we encounter our own need for crucifixion, but we also encounter our new calling. So I'm excited about that. My wife texted me after the first service and she said this, "Um, wow, I was not expecting that sermon from you. (laughs) It was a loving text because I told her, I said, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, pretty behind on the sermon this week. So we got a lot lot of praying to do. And she said, that was definitely a Holy Spirit sermon. So why don't we pray toward that end that uh, God would speak to all of us. Father, We humbly bow before you. We have worshiped. We've given you our hearts and affections and our words, and we received from you, and we pray once again, God, we're open to you. We pray that you would break down our own barriers and our own defenses. We pray you would show up wherever we are, you know exactly what we need, and we pray that your will would be done. In Christ's name, amen. In 1721, Johann Sebastian Bach composed the Brandenburg Concertos, at the wish of Christian Ludwig. The saying uh, and stories go that Christian never even heard the concertos performed, that they weren't really discovered. They were found in some sort of stack of compositions. They weren't discovered till 50 to 70 years later, and now they're known as some of Bach's greatest works, six concertos. Moby Dick, written in 1851, published in 1851 by Herman Melville, was not widely recognized as a great piece of literature until the 1920s 
when great literary minds began to see it, read it, discover it, and, and then it became a part of uh, the syllabi at universities. Vincent van Gogh, great artist, Starry Night, you love the painting. He died in 1890. He had only sold one painting. Didn't become famous until well after he was dead and gone. Sometimes we struggle to recognize greatness in the moment. We struggle to recognize genius when we encounter it until long after there is a death. And I think the same is true with Jesus. Did did they really understand as he hung on the cross all that he had done and taught, all the implications of what was going on on the cross and in the empty tomb three days later? Do we really get it? I think more so it's a, it's a discovery of sorts. We, we understand a certain bit, and then as we grow and we get older and we keep walking with God, that we understand, oh, I didn't know as much as I thought I did back then. There are layers to this thing. There's nuance. There's complexities. It's like turning a gym over and over again. We're just going to find there's new refractions of light to be seen. And when Jesus died and rose again, he uncovered other layers What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like for us to potentially just fix our eyes on Jesus this morning and maybe see him in a new light. Henry Nouwen, the great spiritual author, professor from Notre Dame and Harvard, uh, went to seek spiritual advice from Mother Teresa. I would have loved to have been in that conversation. He went to Mother Teresa, said, I need some spiritual advice. I feel a bit lost. And she just said this, if you spend one hour a day adoring your Lord and Savior, and then don't do anything that you know to be wrong, you'll be just fine. So I would love for us just to spend a little time gazing at Jesus and let those effects take place in our life. Mark 15, 33, Jesus is on the cross. It says this, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't Google Voice that because I don't know if I, I did my best, okay, on that one. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw he died in this way, he said, surely this man was the son of God. In this way, in this way, he saw that Jesus died. Not cursing, not crying out, not embittered, not holding it against people but suffering unjustly and yet bearing perfect justice. Isaiah 42 says that he'll not cry aloud in the streets when he suffers like this. And previously they had brought him wine to drink to try to numb the pain and he didn't do it. And the centurion says when he died in this way, his confession was surely this is the son of God. Now we have to do a little temple work so we're gonna have some history and Old Testament history here a little bit. So if you love that sort of thing, this is for you. If you don't, you can nod off occasionally. I won't hold it against you, but wake up when the good stuff gets here, all right? What is Mark trying to do in his gospel? 
Many scholars think that the format of Mark's gospel is similar to what's known as an ancient bios, an ancient biography, where the writer would start with the adult life of the person, the central figure. And notice that Mark's different from other gospel writers. He doesn't start with the birth narrative. He starts with the adult narrative of Jesus, then immediately out into the wilderness to be tempted, and then he starts his ministry. And what the writer of the bios was trying to do was to show how this central figure, what they taught, how they lived, who they hung out with, um, the way they spent their time and their resources, the manner with which they interacted with other people. But the whole point of the bios is to show that the way the person died, and in the way that the person died, it either validated or invalidated their whole life. It either confirmed all of their teaching and all of their lifestyle, and it had congruity to it, or it didn't. It was dissonant. And Mark is trying to show that even in the midst of overwhelming opposition, opposition from family, opposition from friends, opposition from disciples and the church community, opposition from authority figures and pastors and the Jewish leaders, opposition from Roman rule, opposition from satanic rule, that in the midst of all of this opposition, that Jesus did not give in to the temptation to quit his calling. I think there's something for us there. Because when you and I really start to live out what God has invited us to do and who God has invited us to be, we will experience opposition and opposition always can have the impact of bringing discouragement and disheartenment. And then we fight the temptation to give up our divine calling. But we look to Jesus as the example of our faith who continued to endure even unto suffering unto death. So here in Mark, you see this intricate relationship of Jesus' death and his relationship somehow to what's going on in the temple. In fact, he's hanging on the cross and just a few hours earlier, people are mocking him. They say, oh yeah, you who said you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. What can you do now? You can't even save yourself off the cross. And Jesus is going to break barriers. This tearing of the curtain is a signal that a new chapter in redemptive history is here. It's a significantly new chapter in which God is ushering in. But to make way for the new, we have to get rid of the old. And this is what we need to learn. New breakthroughs require breaking old barriers. New breakthroughs require breaking old barriers. And that's really hard for some of us because we don't like change. We like the old. We like the way it's always been. We like the way the relationship always was. Why can't it go back to just being like that anymore? Why can't the kids go back to being like this anymore? How come work can't be like you, so on and so on? And we hold so tight with closed fists to what has passed that it's difficult to make any space for what God is doing that is new in our lives. And through his death and his relationship to the temple, we will see that God is doing something new and inviting us to new places. Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. He's lifting that from Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which says this, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. 
Now, who's Elijah? It's John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist's message? Repent. And did the people listen? On the whole, no, they did not. So what happened? We know this from history. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. We learned this. When the old form doesn't function, it's time for a change. The temple wasn't in its proper full function. And when, it, when the old form is not functioning, then it's time for a change. And sometimes we have to change the form, but sometimes we're invited to change the function. You say, I don't know what you mean by that. Let me illustrate. Me and my wife have four kids. And when our kids were babies, we were brilliant parents, if I do say so myself. We were great with little babies, had a ton of eye contact with them. We would talk with them. We would hold them. We would sing to them. We would read to them. We would play with them. When it came to be bedtime, we would bathe them. We would feed them. We would burp them. We would put them to bed. They would fall asleep. We were on the couch at 7.30 p.m., holding hands and gazing into each other's eyes. When they became toddlers, we were brilliant parents. That's hot. Don't touch it. Don't jump off the balcony. Listen to mommy and daddy. Stranger danger, so on and so on. We gave them a little swat at the end of the day because you know those toddlers sin somewhere during the day. We'd sing them to sleep. Some of you missed that. We'd sing them to sleep. We'd put them to bed at 7.30. We'd sit on the couch. We'd hold hands. We'd gaze into each other's eyes. We were brilliant parents. And then came adolescence. Middle school. Cell phones and social media boys and emotions. And we were not brilliant parents. We were broken parents. They would swat us because we'd sinned against them during the day. We'd go to bed at 7.30 and we'd lock the door and bar the windows and we would cry ourselves to sleep. (laughs) But you know what we did? We were in that form, but we tried the same function. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to tighten down. We're losing control. We're gonna tighten up control. It's gonna be on a tight schedule and you gotta do this and you gotta do this and you're gonna go to a bed here and this is how it's gonna work until they broke us and they taught us. This is a great form. This is not a proper function. And me and my wife had to learn and we had to listen to our kids and we had to re-strategize and we had to come at this thing with a new spirit and a new mentality and a new function. Some people are in the form of a marriage and it's not going well. And you've been saying to yourself, this form's gotta change. But what if it's not the form that needs to change? What if it's the function? What if you gotta come to it with a new attitude, a new mentality, a fresh spirit of how can I give? I've been looking at all how my needs haven't been met and I've been building up resentment and bitterness, but how can I give back? How can I start to serve? How can I start to listen? Sometimes it's the function that has to change. Sometimes it is the form that has to change. You imagine two people going to the same job, sitting right next to each other, very next to each other in the same cubicles, and one person shows up, and they got their Starbucks coffee, and they came in on time, and they got their headphones on, and they're, they're grooving, and they're moving, and they're plugging away, and they love life, and they're loving their job, and another person sitting right next to them in the same cubicle doing the same thing, and they got their coffee and their headphones on, but they're miserable, and they hate it because they've been called to something different. And they've let fear get in the way of them taking that risk. And they know it. And the form needs to change. 
When the old form doesn't function, it's time for a change. Economists estimate that every year, from September through November, North Carolina revenues about $1 billion on people going to see the leaves change. They call it leaf peeping. That sounds a bit sus to me. It's hard to find hotel rooms because people go up there and they want to see in the mountains these beautiful leaves change from green, gold, red, orange to brown, and then they quite literally fall, you know, that's why we call it fall, off the trees. All of creation understands what season it is and how to respond. And God invites us to get in step. You see, there's a, t- there's a point in time where God stops holding our hand and we have to start adulting. Boo. All the 20s and 30s are like, boo. I'm 41 and I'm still like, boo. Adulting's tough. But there's a point in time when God says, I'm not gonna hold your hand anymore. You have to figure out what season it is. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says there's a time to build and a time to mourn and a time to die and a time to rejoice and a time to dance and a time to tear down what you've built. And sometimes we're holding on so long to something that hasn't born fruit in forever. And that thing's dead and we know it. But we won't get in step with the season because we don't want to let go. Jesus says with his actions and his teaching, the temple's not functioning how it's supposed to be. A new season's come upon it. It's time for a change. Listen to this in Mark 11. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing In the distance, a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus was hangry. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. This is what's known as the cleansing of the temple. There's two cleansing of the temple. And What we find here, I think Trevor, Pastor Jeff introduced to us, it's called a Mark and Sandwich. Mark has this style of introducing an episode, inserting another episode, and then bookending it with the first episode. And what he's trying to do is help us see the importance of it, but also read one in light of the other. So you have fig tree not producing fruit out of season, and then you have cleansing of the temple. And then right after this, the next morning, they come back by Bethany and the disciples see the fig tree and it's withered because Jesus cursed it. And we're meant to look at this and we're meant to say, well, how do you read one? What's it saying? What are we supposed to get from this? We're supposed to get this. The temple was supposed to be bearing fruit, but it's not keeping in step with the season. Therefore, it's time for a change. Are we keeping in step with the season? Can we have the courage and faith to step out trusting that God has called us and God will provide for us. And that Jesus will transfer all of the happenings within the temple, which I'll get to in just a moment, all of the happenings within the temple into a different vehicle to bear fruit. What is that? Look at Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, you have to emphasize it like that, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to do what? To carry the cross. Now Mark's an intentional writer. 
He puts things in the order that he wants us to read it. And we're supposed to look at this and think to ourselves, wait a second, Jesus is bearing a cross and then all of a sudden Simon of Cyrene is called upon to carry that cross. We're supposed to go back into the gospel of Mark and remember Jesus' teaching. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. Oh, this is what discipleship looks like. Ah, we sang about it. Ah, this is what new life looks like. It's death, death first, then resurrection. And we would love to reverse the order. Resurrection life first. Doesn't happen like that. It's always death first unto resurrection. And here we see this. Christ followers are the new fruit-bearing vehicle. Christ followers are the new fruit-bearing vehicle. The mission now is embodied with you and I and in this collective community known as the church, wherever the church is, wherever the church goes, we are the new temple, so to speak, embodying the presence of God through the Holy Spirit and bearing fruit all over the world. Experts say that there should be one billion Christians in the world by 2050. It's still bearing fruit. But hear this, friends. The quality of fruit we bear is proportional to the quantity of times we pick up our cross. Whew. I like that one, so I'm gonna say it again. The quality of fruit we bear is proportional to the quantity of times we pick up our cross. I had a conversation with my wife this week. It didn't go well. Why is that? I know that you're thinking just like me that it was obviously all her fault. It didn't go well because I didn't pick up my cross. And I didn't realize that till later. And then I went into a little prayer battle. You ever get into those with God? And you're like, I don't want to pick up my cross. She needs to pick up her cross. You know what I'm saying? Don't tell me you haven't had that conversation. And finally, I came to this point of, if this thing's going to go well, I'm going to have to pick up my cross. Come back to the conversation. Try to make eye contact. And I say, I heard what you said. I hear what you're trying to communicate. And I'm sorry for this. Now, I don't do that all the time. But in certain moments, I recognize this is the time to pick up my cross. The quality of fruit is directly proportional to the quantity of times we pick up our cross because you and I both know this. We can put that thing down anytime we want to. Anytime we want to. We can also pick it up anytime we choose to. We are the new fruit-bearing vehicles, and it's directly proportional to the quantity of times that we take up that cross. And we don't die to our desires and dreams, the God-given things that he's called us to do. We die to our egocentric self, that thing that puts me forward, that's about me, my pride and my stubbornness, or even my fear and my shame. Those can be egocentric moves that protect me. I've got to lay those things down. It's also time for another change because the temple represented limitations. It represented barriers. Nobody really likes barriers, do we? You see a, a line or a partition and you think, well, I need to be on the other side of that thing. Last night, I was privileged to go to the Carolina game. And uh, before the Carolina game, I was down on the field 
And I was down on the field and there's this buzz and there's this laughing and there's people talking and everybody's excited and look how big the players are and oh my goodness and there's photo opportunities and everything else. And I turned around and I saw the people in the cold stands seated down looking and they look like this. And I thought to myself, well, part of that is because there's a barrier. There's a barrier between them and the field. We don't like barriers. And the temple had barriers. On the, on the, on the, when you would come into the temple, you would come in through a portico, there was a large wall, and you would step into what is known as the court of the Gentiles, the pagans, so to speak, who had converted to Judaism. And they could only come that far. They couldn't go any further. They could come to the court of the Gentiles and they could pray there. And then if you went a little bit further inside of another court, there was what's known as the court of women. And women could go there Jewish women could go there and they could pray and they could worship, but they could only go so far. And there was another barrier. And once you cross that barrier is what's known as the court of Israel or the court of men. And men could go there and they could pray and they could worship, but they could only go so far because there was another barrier. It was called the holy place and priests could go in and they could pray and they could worship, but there was another barrier and they could only go so far because what's in the inside in the innermost court is the most holy place or the holy of holies. And only one person one time a year could go into that place. And you see all of these barriers when you look at temple, how many barriers separated humanity from the presence of God, from the dwelling of God. The temple was the place, the nexus where heaven met earth, where the divine meets the mundane, where the sacred and the secular dwell together. It was everything to the Jewish mind. Their daily rhythm, their weekly rhythm was around temple. Their festivals throughout the year was around temple. Their economy was around temple. And yet there was barriers. And Jesus came, and I don't say this lightly, but he started in his ministry to break those barriers. And people picked up on that, and Paul picked up on that in Galatians 3, and please don't miss this. He says this, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. Ooh, you hear what he's doing? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the new calling for the people of God is in some way gentle and compassionate, in some way, shape, or form to break down barriers that separate humanity, where we discriminate, where we have prejudices, and we all have them. So we have to start here first. Do you see that Christ wants to be all for all? Now let's talk about that inmost barrier for just a second. Mark 15 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is what's known as a divine passive. In grammar, you have different voices doing the action of the verb. If it's an active voice, then I'm the subject and I'm doing the action of the verb. Like I'm tearing the temple curtain. I tore the temple curtain. If it's a passive voice, then I might be receiving the action, but I'm not doing the action. And when the Jewish writers wanted to really catch the readers and the listeners' attention and to say, hey, hey you gotta look at this because something significant has happened here, they would use what's called the divine passive. That's why you don't see a subject here. 
the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. And the implication is God did it. God initiated. God steps first to us. God is on the move to meet with his people and to redeem all humanity and he initiates relationship. What we do is we respond to his initiation and he tore it in two from top to bottom and what's going on inside of this, the Holy of Holies, one of the most significant things was the Ark of the Covenant. I have a picture of the Ark for you. You thought we were gonna watch Indiana Jones, but... This is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And on top, you see that there are cherubim or angels with their wings outstretched. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, you had items like Aaron's uh, staff and then the Ten Commandments and inside of that Ark. But then on the top of it, you have what's called the mercy seat or the kippurette. Everybody say kippurette. Very good. And once a year, the high priest would go in to perform atonement on what's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Everybody say Yom Kippur. Everybody say Kippurat. You see? The mercy seat is the covering, the lid for the ark. It's the Kippurat. And right on top of the Kippurat, in between the two cherubim, was where the glory, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God would take up residence and dwell heaven meeting earth. And once a year, the high priest would slaughter a spotless lamb and take that blood, and he would take that blood and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on what? On top of the kippurette, on top of the mercy seat, offering atonement for the sins of the people. Now, what's significant about this is because what do you have inside of the ark? You have the 10 commandments. And what do you have right on top of the lid? You have the presence of God, the holiness of God. And what does God see when he looks down at the Ten Commandments? He sees humanity's brokenness. And you need something in between the holiness of God and the brokenness of humanity. So once a year, the high priest would take this blood and they would sprinkle it on top so that when God looks at humanity's brokenness, he looks through the blood that was sprinkled. And he sees us forgiven. The blood was sprinkled then. The blood was shed here. Jesus, once for all, offered a perfect sacrifice of atonement so that when God looks at us, he's not a scrupulous rule keeper, much like sometimes we can be at the end of the day taking list and taking note of everything we've done wrong and maybe we did a few things well, but we're not gonna give ourselves any credit for that. And here's all these things I did wrong and we start to confess and we start to go into these places and then we start to get overwhelmed with guilt and the list just gets never ending. But when God sees us, he sees us through Christ. When God hears our worship, he hears us through Christ. When God listens to our prayers, he listens through Christ because the mediation has been accomplished once and for all. The veil was torn, and we have uninhibited, unlimited access through Christ to the presence of the Father. There's no barriers anymore. That's why the gospel is actually good news for all of creation, because we've been liberated from the bondage of sin. We've been set free from fear of the Father. This good news shatters self-hatred frees us from the straight jacket of shame. One of my daughters said to me this week, Daddy, I just feel kind of distant from you. And that hurt. 
And I said, well, I don't feel far from you. Do you have anything that we need to talk about? She said, no, I just feel kind of distant from you. And I just said, I just want you to know how much I love you. And I feel very, very close to you. And I'm here for you if you ever need anything. Friends, what do you think God sounds like when we go to him and we say, I just feel distant from you? Do you think he criticizes us, chastises us? Oh, well, you know, well, I'll tell you why you're distant from me. You've been underperforming lately, right? It's uh, this, this, this is where you went wrong. And if you would just fix these few things and then you could kind of get cleaned up and then, no. The father says, I'm just happy you showed up for prayer. I'm delighted to spend some time with you. Let's talk. Add a boy, add a girl. Friends, if that's not how you hear the heavenly father, I pray that God would heal our ears so that we would have better hearing. We are the new temples and new temples carry new treasures. Since COVID, the uh, investment in trailers and mobile homes and RVs has gone up significantly. People are taking those things and they're going on long vacations and sometimes homeschooling their kids or just being out. But what they're saying is we're gonna go out and we're gonna travel. Friends, we are traveling temples. We carry new treasures wherever we go. We're not confined to one place. We're the organic people of God. We are the aroma of Christ. In the temple, you would smell, it was a, it was a sensory experience. You would smell animals, you would smell blood, but you would also smell incense burning. Revelation says that the prayers of the saints are now incense to God. You would see things. You would see the the menorah, the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You're the light of the world. There was bread of presence. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You're the bread of life now. Bring this food to all people around you. And in the temple, there were sacrifices. Romans 12, Paul says, you're a living sacrifice. All of this stuff you carry within you, you are living temples, traveling temples, bringing new treasures wherever you go. So what? What do we do with that? I'd like to close with just two brief applications. Because we are new temples with a new calling, first, we have to preserve the life of the temple. We have to preserve the life of the temple. We recently added a fifth child to our family. Last year, my wife got me a lime tree for Christmas and I treat that thing like it's a newborn baby. I have a picture of the lime tree. I didn't say it was pretty, it's pretty rugged. But look, 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 those flowers there on the bottom, that's what's gonna turn into the fruit, the lime. Look at the bottom one, he's, he's coming out. He's got a little yellow hat on, he's working hard, right? My kids criticize me, they're like, man, you take better care of that lime tree than you do us. I'm like, that's right, you're not growing limes. Produce some fruit around here, kids. Every day I wake up, I'm not exaggerating. Every day I wake up and I walk over to my lime tree and I count the number of limes that are gonna be on this lime tree and I look at the window and I see the sun and I think to myself, where can I position this lime tree to get the proper sun with the greenhouse effect through the window and I position it there and then I go away and then later in the afternoon, when I come home, I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, the sun's out in the front of the yard. So I pick the lime tree up and I carry, this is how I walk when I carry the lime tree. I carry the lime tree out to the front of the yard so we can get the evening sun and every three days or so, I put it out in the backyard and I get a bucket water and I just water that lime tree because it loves water and I watered it and if any if anybody gets near my lime tree 
I raise my voice. When our dog gets near our lime tree, I raise my voice. When our children get near our lime tree, I raise our voice. Hey, look out for my lime tree. It's precious to me. And if only I would be that passionate about preserving the life of my heart. Proverbs 3 says, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. It's the life flow of God through us living out our creative calling and our passions and our dreams and desires and saying no to anything that threatens or kills it. Some of that stuff hasn't been giving you life in a long time. Let it go. We preserve the life of the temple. Lastly, we protect the purity of the temple. When we give ourselves over our affections, our resources, our mental strength, our bodies, when we give ourselves over to worshiping anything that isn't God, it's called idolatry. And the more consistently we build momentum in that place, then we forfeit the privilege of bringing good news to the world because it's not good to us anymore. You know, most people think that what's going on in Genesis one and two is not just creation, It's the building of a temple where God could come and dwell with humanity in his earthly temple. And Adam and Eve functioning as priests, what were they supposed to do to the unclean presence that threatened the borders of that temple? They were supposed to behead the snake, but they didn't. And friends, you and I are to protect the purity of the temple of our lives We encounter Jesus' sacrifice. We encounter our own need for sacrifice, but we also encounter our new calling to be life-giving forces out in the world, hands and feet, voices of Jesus, hugs of Jesus, encouragement of Jesus, weeping tears of Jesus, rejoicing mouths of Jesus because we're new temples with new treasures empowered by the Holy Spirit for his work. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Mark. What a rich book, and we didn't even scratch the surface. Thank you for the depth of your word, the breadth of your word. Thank you that we can go to it again and again and again, and we get challenged, and we see new things, and you remind us of old things that are true. Father, I pray that we would be a people who understand what season it is for us. That we would let go of things that have not been bearing fruit for quite some time. And that we would lean into you. Father, that we would wake up and have that passion to see your life bear fruit within our own lives, in our own heart, in our own souls that we'd protect the purity of this calling. God, you know we sin and you cover us and we're, we're grateful for that. And yet we also have a responsibility to say no to things that harm us and hurt us. For the sake of your love, give us that strength. May all of this teaching on Mark, may all of it bear fruit in and through us. 
We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.